Deuteronomy <clears throat> chapter 12, verses 1 through 28. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. <clears throat> there you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil, or the firstborn of your herd or your flock, or any of your vow offerings that you vow, or your free will offerings, or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord will choose. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat, because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, 
and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take, and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. I wonder if you have heard this statement before. I think it can sound really plausible many times. And it's something like this. All, all the religions in the world are just different ways of worshiping the same God. You ever heard that? Or read that? Maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you've thought that. Maybe you, you come in this morning and you're thinking that. The, the object of our worship is the same. Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, animists, we just go about it in different ways. So some worship like this, some worship like that. But the important thing is to discover whatever expression of Spirituality works for you, we're told. Because no single religion has the corner on the truth, which means we should all be learning from one another. And if we would just focus on learning from one another instead of disagreeing with one another, we could peacefully coexist. Cue the bumper sticker, right? That you've probably seen. Friends, that that kind of the fancy word for it is religious pluralism, <laughs> is the air we breathe. But there are some major problems with that way of thinking. Let me mention two. The first, as we prepare to dive in here, the, the first is the problem of contradiction. The, the way we worship God, the, the way we seek to please him in, invariably, always reflects who we believe he is and what we think he's like. So for example, if I choose to engage with God by spending time in nature, I'm, I'm reflecting my belief. I think, where do I need to go to find God? I got to go to nature. Reflecting my belief that, that God is one with the natural world. He, he doesn't exist outside the cosmos above the cosmos, he's, he's part of the cosmos. He's enveloped by the, the world. The, the way I worship, in that case, reveals who I fundamentally believe God is. Namely, he's not a person, he's a spiritual essence, he's mother nature. Here's another example. What, what if I choose to engage with God by physically killing his enemies as an expression of his righteous judgment? Well, I'm still saying something if I choose to worship in that way. 
instead of the Mother Nature way, I'm still saying something about who God is, right? Except in this case, I'm saying God is not one with the natural world. He's a person who stands above the cosmos to whom all are accountable and who inflicts his judgments on earth through the human power of the sword. That's what I'm saying about God. If I worship in that way. Now, what if I worship God, last example, giving him his due, so to speak, by being a good neighbor? Don't worry about going to church. That's kind of where all the problems start, you know? It's just about Jesus. (laughs) Loving people is what counts. And, And God knows no one's perfect, so just do your best and everything will work out. What if I worship God in that way? What am I doing? I'm, I'm reflecting my belief that God doesn't actually really judge anyone, right? I mean, maybe some guys that are on our bad guy list, like Hitler and, I don't know, other people that, that were never on that list, if you've noticed that. Um, but, but toward most people, who is God? Well, he's a sympathetic grandfather who responds with a wink and a smile, and boys will be boys, I could keep going, but what's the problem? The problem is God cannot be what all those various ways of worshiping him say he is. You following? Because they completely contradict one another. You you can say all religions worship the same God just in different ways. But the different ways we worship him ultimately reflect fundamentally incompatible takes, versions, beliefs about who that God actually is. So, so pluralism can sound really nice, but, but it, as soon as you press on that, it's just shot through with contradictions. Here, here's the second problem. Here's the second problem as we thank God for being in a dry place. <laughs> and this is where we get close to the text. This, this is what ultimately undermines the entire pluralism thing. It's the problem of revelation. The God with whom we have to do, friends, you have to do, hear me, has not left it up to us to decide who he is or what he's like or how to please him as a result, or worship him as a result. He has revealed himself to us through his word. And throughout his word, Deuteronomy 12 included, God makes something crystal clear. This is the main point of the whole chapter, okay? He may only be worshiped in the way he requires and he makes possible. God may only be worshiped in the way he requires, he requires, and makes possible. Deuteronomy 12, 4, look there. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Verse 8, you shall not do according to all that we're doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Verse 14, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. That, that phrase, the place that the Lord or the Lord your God will choose, that actually shows up six times in this section. It's a theme. <laughs> and the focus in many respects, friends, is less on the particular place where God requires worship 
and more on God's sovereign right to choose. Think about that. And this is the first issue Moses addresses as he begins this, this third sermon to Israel. Remember, they're, they have been with us for a while. They're on the plains of the Jordan, waiting to enter the promised land. Moses is preaching. This is sermon number three. And he launches into the main point right out of the gate. Israel, as you go in the land, remember, God may only be worshipped in the way he requires and makes possible. That's important and pastorally wise because they're about to go into a place that is saturated with false gods. The the number of ways the Canaanites worshipped them were as numerous as the number of green trees. Think about that. But, But they all have something in common. They're all the invention of man. They're human concepts fashioned in the the mind of human wisdom, which is why the gods of the Canaanites ultimately looked and acted a lot like the Canaanites. (laughs) But not so with the God of Israel, right? Because Israel didn't invent Yahweh or carve out Yahweh or come up with a preferred way of worshiping Yahweh. Yahweh made himself known to Israel through words. Unlike all the false gods of Canaan, what did the Lord God of Israel do? He spoke. They never spoke. Israel's God, our God, speaks because he's the living God. And so like Every faithful pastor today, Moses, beginning of a sermon, doesn't begin with his thoughts about God. He begins with God's words about himself. What what has God told us about himself? Look at verse 1. These are the statutes and rules, Israel, that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. In other words, everything Moses is about to say while he's preaching, what is it? It's the obedient response to God's gracious work of redemption. And it starts with worshiping God in the way he requires and he makes possible. So what does that kind of worship look like? That's how we're going to approach this passage. The, the structure of the chapter, Moses' sermon here, it actually kind of resembles, if this helps you, a circling plane. A circling plane. Ever been, you know, you're trying to land somewhere and they're like, there's too many planes, so you just kind of in, say in orbit, but you're just, <laughs> you're not in orbit. You're just circling an airport, hoping that you're number two in line or something. Well, well, the structure of this chapter is like a circling plane because Moses makes the same point five times. If you caught that as Bev was kindly reading, he just adds a little more detail with every pass. So what we're going to do is spend most of our time in verses 2 through 14. That's the first half. And then just make connections to the second half as we go. Because it's all the same orbit. Okay? So what does true worship look like? If God may only be worshipped in the way he requires and makes possible, what does that worship look like? Let me give you three answers. First, true worship is exclusive. It's exclusive. Look at verse 2. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. 
So the Canaanites, what's that tell us? That the Canaanites worshiped nothing more than what their own hands had made, right? Which is why it was all a fruitless striving after the wind for them. Because their gods were not the creator with whom we have to do. They were created things. They were pillars or a shiram or, or carved images. They, they were human attempts to capture the divine and then having captured it and described it, to control it. That's what that was about. So what must Israel do? Look at verse three. She must tear them all down. What's Moses say? Dash them in pieces, burn them, chop them, destroy their name out of that place. (laughs) Remove the very memory of them. That that violent language in verse 3, my friend, signals, points to two enduring necessities for the people of God. Hear this. First, putting sin to death always requires strenuous action. Pastor, I prayed for God to deliver me from pornography or pride, and nothing's changed. I'm here to tell you today over coffee that Jesus doesn't work. Well, friend, my heart goes out to you, but, but frankly, did you expect a quick and painless deliverance? I mean, what does Hebrews 12, 4 say? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But putting sin to death takes work. It's really hard. It's, it's messy. It's bloody. It's a fight for your life. Second, putting sin to death requires removing occasions of sin. Think about this. Doing verse 3 entailed a ton of work. A ton of work. Like physical, sweaty, messy, nationwide demolition. And they didn't have backhoes. So how about this, Moses? How about we, we don't remove the high places? We just ignore them. <laughs> we'll just keep reminding ourselves to not go there. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of manage the temptation. Friend, if, if you in any way hold on to the option of sinning, you will eventually succumb to temptation. You know, we can do that. We can say, well, I won't actually do that because I know it's wrong, but but I'm not sure I'm quite ready to get rid of the opportunity if I really get in a jam. That idol or that drug or that, that relationship no one knows about. Maybe I'll just kind of lock the door and, but you know, it, it's still there. Tracking? Friend, that'll, that'll slowly but surely lead your heart away from the living God without fail. And notice Moses' primary concern here in chapter 12, the whole thing, is not, look at verse 4, a wholesale rejection of Yahweh. 
oh, I'm worried Israel, they're just going to, you know, start thinking that like Baal is real and Yahweh's a joke. No, the concern is the, the, the threat of syncretism. We're not worshiping false gods, Moses. Stop being so worked up. We're, we're, we're still worshiping Yahweh. We're, we're just employing new means. We're, we're doing it in a more culturally acceptable way, in a, in a Canaanite kind of way. A, a few more hills, a few more mountains, and, and frankly, the ability to just worship God wherever I find a green tree, that is super convenient. <sighs> Isn't loving Jesus enough, Pastor? I mean, why, why, do, why do I have to do it in a particular way? I mean, after all, what works for you might not work for me. Well, look at verse 4. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. What kind of way is that? Well, a way that's consistent with human wisdom and human understanding instead of the clear instruction of God's word. And that can happen really subtly. Well, let's be very clear as we're getting into this. That temptation hasn't gone anywhere. We're still swimming in that. Okay? It can sound like this. Pastor, I know worshiping God means loving my family. So don't be surprised when family activities keep me from gathering with the church on Sunday morning. Is that a problem? Family activities consistently keep you from gathering with the people of God on Sunday morning? That's a huge problem. It's a big problem. Why? Because you're trying to worship God in a way that is different than what he requires. <laughs> Hebrews 10. What's God tell us? Here's, worship me this way. Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. So hear me, friend. You're not worshiping God or loving your family if you fail to lead your family together regularly with the local church. God tells us how to worship him. And that means what? Hebrews 10, gathering with the assembly of the local church. I'll give you another example, how easy this is to do. Pastor, I found a counselor who says they're a Christian. They're not in church, but they say they're a Christian. Side note, I have no problem with counselors outside the church. <laughs> But yeah, I found one, they're a Christian. They, they say they're committed to worshiping God, want to help me worship God. And, and I'm thinking that means that whatever they encourage me to do must be good. And they actually told me this week, unlike the counsel you gave, that I should leave my spouse because they're not meeting my emotional needs. So it must be okay. Because they love Jesus. Well, not so fast, friend. I hope they love Jesus, but, but we have to test that, right? We, we, you must use scripture to not just test who you're worshiping, but how you're worshiping. Does that make sense? Let's, let's not just ask who they're encouraging you to worship. May it be Jesus. If they're not, you, sh you should run out the door, but, but we also have to test how are they encouraging you to worship? Because if the how what they're telling you to think or to feel or to do. If that's not consistent with who God is, what he's done, and what he requires as a result in his word, then you're not worshiping God, no matter how much you plead otherwise. You're worshiping a God of your own making, who's content with whatever actions will help you feel better or make your problems go away faster. 
And that is most certainly, my friend, not the God with whom we have to do. That's not what he's like. True worship is exclusive. And that means having no other gods before him. Check this out. (laughs) Including versions of the Lord that are nothing more than a creation of man. It's easy to say, oh yeah, you know, if somebody puts a gun to my head and says, you know, I should worship Buddha, I'll say, no, I'm with Jesus. (laughs) I'm frankly not worried that any of you are going to do that. Here's what I'm worried about. That we would listen to voices all around us that say, I worship God, I love Jesus, and then uncritically adopt whatever they're encouraging us to do, however they're saying, we'll worship God this way, without testing it with what God tells us about how he wants us to worship him. Does that make sense? Be careful. True worship is exclusive. Second, water, other side. True worship is Christ-centered. It's Christ-centered. Look at verse five. If verse four is the put off, so to speak, what, what is the put on? But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. What's what's the question? Where must we go to encounter God, friend? Where where do we find God? Do, Do we... Do we reach him by, by doing good works or, or living a moral lifestyle? Do, do we discover him through emotional experiences or when the music's just right on Sunday and, and the worship leader, you know, ushers us into God's presence? Do we find God when we're sitting on the beach and we, we feel his power in the waves and the wind? Do, do we find him in Christian community or conferences? Do, do we find God through just acquiring all kinds of right doctrine in our minds? Maybe you like to engage with God through acts of service. Let's put that on the list. (laughs) Plenty of Christians have told me that, Matthew, this ministry or this leadership role, that is how I worship God. That's where I encounter God. That's where I engage with God. Subtle implication, pastor, you better not ask me to step down. (laughs) Right? Because that's how I worship God. Don't, Don't mess with that. Brothers and sisters, please hear me on this. There is one place and one place only where God has chosen to put his name, to reveal his character, to, to, to make his presence known. If you want to engage with God, if you want to encounter God, if you want to worship God, this is where you must go. This is where you must look. You have to look to Jesus. You have to go to Jesus. John 1.18 No one, none of us, has ever on our own seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, he also spoke to us, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and the exact imprint of his nature. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father. No one engages with God. No one encounters God except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
What's the place Israel must worship according to verse 11? Look there. Well, they don't know yet. It'll become Jerusalem. But for now, it's the place God would choose to make his name dwell there. To manifest his glory. Friend, today, that place is no longer a physical temple in a physical city called Jerusalem. That place is the person of Jesus Christ. That's the place. We, if you want to know God, if you want to see God, if you want to hear God, you have to see and know and listen to Jesus. He's the place. If you want to encounter God, you have to come to Jesus. If you want to please God, you have to wholeheartedly trust and obey Jesus. What's the point? We do not get to choose a preferred way of engaging with God and then invite him to show up to the party. He chooses the way, Christ, and invites us to come and encounter him. And what has Jesus done to bring you to God, Christian? Let's not skip past that. He died in your place for your sin so God could justly forgive you. And he obeyed in your place. He perfectly obeyed God's law so God could declare you righteous. Approaching God requires both the the absence of sin that separates, filthy garments taken off, and the presence of righteousness that welcomes, clean garments put on. And check it out. Only Jesus offers both of those things. Only Jesus can give you both of those things because only Jesus can restore your relationship to God. Only Jesus can can bid you welcome to the Father as an adopted son or daughter of the King. There's no other way, period, for you to worship God except through faith in Jesus. The, The foundation of true worship isn't good works, church attendance, financial generosity, emotional experiences, the splendors of nature, knowing all the right doctrines, and certainly not a preferred form of Christian ministry. True worship is centered on Jesus. That's the worship God requires. So if you're not worshiping Jesus, you're not worshiping God by a different means. You're not worshiping God at all. Because you're not worshiping the one in whom God has made himself known. There's no other mediator between God and man except the man Christ Jesus. And here's the good news. God not only chose and provided a place for Israel, eventually the temple in Jerusalem, to worship him, he actually brought Israel to the place. Look at verses 8 and 9. Notice why Moses says Israel has yet to worship Israel. God in the way he requires. You shall not do according to all that we're doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. Isn't that interesting? Why are you not yet worshiping God in the way he requires? I mean, I almost expect Moses to say, well, because you're a bunch of stubborn rebels, you know? But that was true. But he points to something bigger. He says, Israel, 
We are, as it were. I'm waiting for God to do the work that only he can do. God has to bring us into his place. God doesn't just choose the place. He has to bring us to his place. Faithfully, lovingly, graciously. God has to work in our hearts and lives. We, that's what needs to happen. He, he must act to give us salvation rest in Jesus. God must act in your heart, friend, to, to bring you to his place through faith and repentance. It's, it's his work. It's his spirit. It's his enabling power that gives you the ability to even begin worshiping God in the way he requires. Look at verse 10. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. What, what's the tipping point? It's not, Israel will just wait for you to get with the program. No, it's the sovereign mercy of God. The sovereign work of God. And friend, that dependence, that necessity has not changed one bit. God, who provides a place for us to worship him, Christ Jesus, is faithful to lead his people to Christ Jesus. He, he delights to open eyes, doesn't he? To, to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What did he do for Israel? He gave them a land. He didn't just choose a place. He brought them into the place. He showed them the place. What did he do for us in Christ? He not only provides the place, he brings us to the place. He leads us to the place. That's a work of his spirit. So take heart. It's not just about, oh, well, I've been worshiping God in this way and now I've got to kind of do the Jesus thing. Well, that's true. But we're also utterly dependent on the Lord to not just pick the place, but to bring us to the place. True worship is in God's place. It's Christ-centered. And he makes a way by leading us to Jesus. Here's the last mark. True worship is sacrificial. Think about this. God required more of Israel than just showing up to the right place to worship. <laughs> Do you notice that? Like, was it just, hey, so just make sure you come to the right place. Okay, well, what are we going to do when we get there? Well, I don't know. Figure it out. Pick something. You know, be, you do you. <laughs> no. Yes, you have to come to this place. But, but when in that place, worship me in this kind of way. She had to do what God required at the place he chose. Bring the right sacrifices and offerings. Look at verse 6. There, God's place, you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, firstborn of your herd and of the flock. I mean, it's not exhaustive, but you get the idea, right? Offerings, sacrifices, the same instructions show up almost word for word in verses 11, verse 13, and verse 26. Moses, why would you bother repeating what we're supposed to bring? 
again and again and again, you know, circling the plane to make a point and help us not forget. What's the point? True worship requires sacrifice. True worship requires sacrifice. True then, true today. That the place God chose, that the place he set apart where, where Israel could confidently engage with him, what wasn't just any old place. It was a place of sacrifice. And that for two reasons, okay? First, worship requires a sacrifice of atonement an atoning kind of sacrifice. Did you catch the fact that burnt offerings are the start of the list almost every time in chapter 12? Why? Because watching an animal be entirely consumed, meat, blood, flesh, dung, the whole thing by fire, watching that go down, was meant to teach Israel something. Can you imagine watching that? What did she need to remember? Israel, when you approach Yahweh, when you worship Yahweh, you don't deserve to be here. You don't. And friend, nor do you. Or do I? You deserve to be consumed by God's wrath on account of your sin, just like that animal. But Christian, you're not. Why? Because, because every burnt offering, every, every sacrifice of atonement for her, Israel's guilt, for her shame, what did that do? It just pointed forward to the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ for all of the guilt and shame of those who trust in him. It's, it's impossible, Hebrews says, for the blood of bulls and goats to, to take away sin, but it's not impossible for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was consumed by the wrath of God in your place. And because that is what happened to him, he can now remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. Without that, hear me, without the gospel, there would be no worship. Because without a perfect sacrifice to, to deal with sin, there would only be separation, alienation, distance from a holy God. And that's a big part of why the Lord takes a lot of pains. We don't have time to go through all this. But in the second half of this chapter, a lot of detail. Verse 15, 23, 24, 25, don't eat the blood. Did you wonder about that? Don't eat the blood. Don't eat the blood. Don't, I mean, again and again and again. Okay, I get it. Why? Why were they forbidden to eat blood? Why, why did they have to pour out the blood of animals that were just slaughtered for food on the earth like water? Or if it was an animal reserved for sacrifice for the Lord, why did they have to, verse 27, pour out the blood of that animal on the altar? That, that wasn't just a random ordinance. Look at verse 23. Blood represents life. For the blood is the life. Well, what's the point? All life, animal life included, okay? Okay is a gift from the Lord. 
given by him and it should not be used apart from his good purposes. Then and now, life is not a a commodity for us to exploit at our leisure. It's a gift for us to steward. And here too, all the carnivores in this room can say amen, (laughs) right? Because, Because pouring out the blood of an animal, animal slaughtered for food was what? It was a way of saying, Lord, the life I just took to nourish my own comes from your hand. Thank you. It wasn't crass. It wasn't callous. It wasn't, well, I'll show you, you little thing. I can just use you animal life however I want because I have dominion. You know? No. There was, a, there was a reverence for all the life that God created, even as an animal died to nourish the people of God. It's a way of saying thanks. And if it was an animal reserved for the Lord, one of the holy things, Pouring out their blood on the altar was a way of saying what? Lord, I thank you that because this animal died, I don't have to die. Because you provided a sacrifice, I can be forgiven and welcomed into your presence. So so why is God regulating how Israel treats animal blood? He's doing it to preserve blood in the national mind as a holy thing, a sacred thing, a a set apart thing, a, a gift reserved by him to make atonement for sin. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So true worship requires a sacrifice in an atoning kind of sense, but but it's also a place of sacrifice in the sense of consecration, in a devotion kind of sense. A a place where, where gifts like tithes and vows and free will offerings and vow offerings, what did they do? They all expressed the people's devotion, the worshiper's devotion to Yahweh. And the same principle, please hear this, carries forward under the new covenant today. Only today, under the new covenant, new way of relating to God through Christ, animals are not the sacrifice of consecration. Do you know what is? You are. You are. Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Christian, do you think of yourself as a sacrifice? No, 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 no. Like, like Jesus did all that, so now I can just kind of like get out of jail free card. I got Jesus and you know, whatever I do, I can like get out of jail. <laughs> This might be the most important thing you hear me say today for some of you. True worship is just not about the music. It's not about the music. Nor does worship start at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. True worship is about devoting your entire life to making much of Jesus. That's what it is. You're the sacrifice. Worshiping God means his honor, his renown is the great cause that that compels and animates all that you think and all you feel and all all you do. The, The issue, are we worshiping God or not, is are you living for yourself or are you living for God? 
for your priorities and purposes or God's priorities and purposes. Why? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Because whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, make sure you sing to God loudly on Sunday morning. (laughs) No. Do all to the glory of God. Live as a living sacrifice. Yes, Jesus provided the only sacrifice necessary for you to draw near to God with confidence. But that sacrifice, that mercy, that grace, that compels and empowers us, it always does, to gladly consecrate our lives to him in response. That, that's what faith in Jesus looks like, friend. That's what true worship requires. We become a living sacrifice of wholehearted obedience in every area of life. Now, I'm willing to bet that 90% of you in this room would say, I totally agree, Pastor. Thank you for telling me something that I can amen and go home and feel better about all the true doctrine I believe. Well, that's not my goal because that's not God's goal. Many people say with their mouth, I can say this with my mouth, friend. Of course I worship God. I love Jesus. I knew Jesus. Tell me something new. But are we actually doing it in the way God requires? What do you mean? Well, are you doing, verse 8, whatever is right in your own eyes? Or in the words of verse 13, are you making burnt offerings at any place that works for you? I mean, it sounds like this, you know? Well, I might not be sleeping, you know... (laughs) I may be sleeping with my girlfriend, but at least I don't have another girl on the side. That would be really bad. Or I may never read my Bible, but, but at least I don't watch porn every night. Or I may rarely gather with the people of God for worship on Sundays, but you know, at least when I do, I put a lot of money in the offering. <laughs> we, what's all that have in common? We decide, we think, I like to worship God. I like to please God in this way. I'm really not so interested or on board with worshiping or pleasing God in this way. (laughs) I I like this. I don't like that. But on balance, you know, even if uh, you have some concerns, I'm happy to listen. I'll, I'll go to bed tonight knowing at least I still worship God on balance. More areas in my life where I'm doing things God's way than not. Yeah, I know I'm just refusing to follow him in that area. Can't argue with that, Pastor, but I mean, I love Jesus. We, we, we spin that as kind of a modern take on Christianity, don't we? We say, I'm not rejecting the faith. I'm just shedding some, some conservative cultural expressions of love for Jesus. Trust me, Matthew, I still love Jesus. Really. Friend, please hear me. You neither love Jesus nor worship Jesus if you are not ordering your life according to the word of Jesus. You neither love Jesus and you're not worshiping Jesus if your life isn't governed by the word of Jesus, 
We, we don't get to negotiate the terms of our worship. It, it's not a, a contract we enter into. You know, it's, God hasn't given us freedom to decide how we want to worship him. Like, like some sort of, some of you like blaze pizza, right? You know, it's like some sort of customized personal pizza. Well, you know, I kind of worship God with pepperoni and I kind of worship God with anchovies. Ooh, I wouldn't want to do that. You know, it's like, no, no. God tells us exactly how we must worship him through the commands he gives us in his word. I, I love how Daniel Block says it. Worship must be designed to please the object of worship, not the worshipers. Put that on your mirror. <laughs> True worship involves an audience with the divine king and transpires in God's place by God's invitation on God's terms, full stop. And the terms are nothing less than your entire life. Here's what that means. If there's even one area of your life, my friend, where, where you're stubbornly saying, I will not do what God commands me to do in his word, then you are not worshiping God. No matter how many other good things you, you think you can point to, you're, you're still refusing to stop doing whatever is right in your own eyes. You're, you're just doing whatever's good in your own eyes. You're calling the shots instead of letting God call the shots, which means you're actually worshiping yourself. We must worship God in the way he requires and in Christ he makes possible. Worship is exclusive. It's Christ-centered. It's sacrificial. That time permitted I would add to that list. If you want to study this chapter more, true worship is also corporate. Do you notice how everyone in Israel, including marginalized groups, is commanded to worship God together? We experience that on Sunday morning. True, true worship is also joyful. That's all over the chapter. Over and again, Moses commands Israel, rejoice before the Lord your God. That's not an option. That's a command. Why? Why? Why, why does he say in verse 7, at least I'll mention this, to eat before the Lord your God. I command you to eat. Meat. Really? <laughs> yeah, why? Because that's a statement of God's heart to satisfy you with the life-giving joy of his presence and his blessings. You, you realize, friend, when God requires worship, it's not a power trip on his part. He's after your good. Did you hear, did you see his, his heart to bless Israel, to care for Israel? Eat meat to my glory. Enjoy my presence to my glory. Worship me in, in this way, not that way, for your good. Look at the very end, verse 28. Be careful to do this, Israel. All the words I command you. Why? That it may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. Friend, for your good, be careful. Exclusive worship, Christ-centered worship, sacrificial worship, for your good and God's glory.